Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, verse 1, chapter 1. And we'll read this uh, great passage. Um, I was trying to think of some catchy way to sort of capture the dynamic of what goes on in this passage. And so I'll suggest this to you, and you can kind of keep it in your head as we make our way through these next weeks of Advent. Here's the phrase. As you read this passage, it's, it's just remarkable how extraordinarily ordinary are the things going on in this passage. And how ordinarily extraordinary are the things that are going on in this passage. It is such an incredible mixture of the extraordinary and the ordinary. So let's read together. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. 
And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the hope in it. Be with us as we think about it. Give us your spirit. Give us your spirit, Lord Jesus. May we walk with you through the experience of Zechariah and Elizabeth and watch as you work. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. This is the first Sunday in Advent. I'm tempted to say, Happy New Year. I'm tempted to say, Happy New Year. But that might just be confusing for you. Except that it really isn't confusing. Because the first Sunday in Advent represents the beginning of the church year. And we don't make a big deal about this. I'd like to make a bigger deal than we do. We don't make a big deal about this, but every Sunday in the bulletin, there is this little heading that says the Christian year. I don't know if you pay attention to that, but it's there every week. And it's there again this week. And this is the first Sunday in Advent, which starts the cycle in the life of the church, the cycle, frankly, of remembrance. The cycle in which the people of God remember that Christ came into the world. That's That's Christmas, the season of Christmas. We're not in Christmas, we're in Advent. We're anticipating the Advent of Christ, the coming of Christ into the world. Advent is followed by Christmas, which is followed by Epiphany, which is then followed by an extended period of time leading up to Lent, which is a time of preparation for Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Day, and then Ascension Day, and then Pentecost And for the rest of the year, we celebrate the expansion of the church of Jesus Christ into the nations of the earth. Amen. That is a good thing to do. And it's a good thing to do because we're all so forgetful. And we need reminders. We need to remember. And so what we're doing as we begin this Advent season, in effect, is celebrating that time and space, time and space, Human history is the realm in which God works. And we're remembering that. And so this really is Happy New Year. This is the beginning of the new year for us. And these candles up here, these three purple candles and then that pink candle, this is all a way of of having this reality sort of impressed upon our consciousness for the next two weeks. These two weeks are times of preparation, they're times of repentance and anticipation. We need a Savior. We turn our hearts in the direction of the Savior. But then we get to the pink candle and there's a shift. There's a shift now from repentance to rejoicing because we're getting close. We're getting close to the moment when the Savior of the world comes into the world. And so it's repentance that leads to rejoicing. And then we're off and running for the next year, celebrating the time and space are the realm in which God works. 
We're starting with Luke chapter 1. We're starting with what is sort of the beginning of the story of fulfillment. And as we do this, as we look at this passage, not surprisingly, I'm going to give you three words. Three words to kind of hang this passage on and to sort of hang the beginning, the beginning of this story of fulfillment on. And the three words are these, silence, speech, and song. Silence, speech, and song. And trust me, they're all here. They're all here. Here's a question. And it's a question, the answer to which I'm pretty sure I know. Have you ever sought God for something? Ever prayed about something? Something that seemed good and seemed right. You prayed about it for a long time. And what came back was silence. Was silence. Not yes. Not no. Not not now. Not wait a while. But just silence. And then comes longing. And then come these other emotions, other things that start to kick in. Fear, despair, hopelessness, and then frustration and maybe even anger. Welcome to the world of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Welcome to the world of Zechariah and Elizabeth. There is incredible poignancy in this passage and incredible power and I think profound help for us. It's important and it's helpful to know that motherhood was a sign of blessing for God's people, for women who were numbered among God's people. Childbearing was a sign of God's blessing. Barrenness was a bad thing. Barrenness was a profoundly theological thing. It wasn't just a circumstantial thing. It wasn't just bad luck. It wasn't just a bad roll of the dice. It was a profoundly theological thing. It meant that God was withholding blessing. That was the perception. That was the understanding. You see it even in the Old Testament. You see it in some sort of ironic ways but you see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it certainly in the life of Abram and Sarah. Right? I mean, here is Abram who runs around with this name that, that in effect says, Blessed Father. And he's looking around, and of course, in a, 
in a patriarchal culture, highly patriarchal culture. Nobody ever asks the question whether or not the guy is virile. Abram's walking around with this name that says, Blessed Father, he has no sons, and who's the fall guy, the fall gal, for his lack of sons? It's Sarah. It's Sarah. That's explicit. But there are these other things in the scriptures in the Old Testament that sort of underscore the fact that barrenness is a bad thing and suggestive that God is withholding blessing. These are actually correctives to that. But they're correctives in the scriptures because it was so pervasive to understand that barrenness meant God was withholding his blessing. Psalm 113 verse 9, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joy of her children. Isaiah 54 verse 1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have never been in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more numerous than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. See, those are correctives, correctives because of this pervasive, this pervasive understanding that barrenness is a function of God withholding his blessing. Now, here's the thing to think about. You know that passages like this, here's the thing to think about. You know that passages like this would be read in the synagogue. When Jesus went to Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, the scroll was given to him and he read from Isaiah 61 and then he preached from Isaiah 61. You know that Psalms, many of them were sung in the synagogue. Not all of them. They'd never get through Psalm 119. But they were sung. These passages were read and they were sung. And so imagine, if you will, through the years, Zechariah and Elizabeth would, would go to church. They would gather. They would gather together with other believers and passages would be read. And here is Elizabeth and here is Zechariah. And maybe occasionally they heard these words. On some occasion they heard these passages from the Psalms or from Isaiah. And you have to think, whether literally or in some figurative sense, people are looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, barren and child. And what comes back at them? Silence. Haunting. Daily. Ever-present silence. He works in the village. He sees other people with their children. He grows old enough to see other people's children with their grandchildren. And he thinks to himself, our name will die with us. You wonder, don't you? The text says that Zechariah was an old man, that he was advanced in years. You wonder, did Zechariah and Elizabeth stop praying? Did they give up? 
Did they simply give in to the silence? And then, and then did they do this second thing? Did they become introspective? Did they listen to the voice of the surrounding culture, the church culture, if you will? And did they engage in some deep self-assessment? And did they try to find an answer to the problem of their silence in themselves? Did they turn inward and ask this question, there must be something wrong with me. It must be my sin. It must be my lack of faith. It must be that God is not pleased with me. Are you tracking with me at all? But that is not the case. It is not the case, folks, that there is something wrong with Zechariah or with Elizabeth. How do I know that? Because of what the text says about them. Verses 6 and 7. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They were both righteous before God and walking blamelessly with him. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Luke includes that little comment about Zechariah and Elizabeth? And isn't it interesting that the order of the comment is what it is? Now, I'm going to talk more about this next week for those of you who may need to hear this. This is an important thing. The first few verses of this gospel, Luke says that he's investigated everything thoroughly. He's a first-rate historian. So the information that he got about Zechariah and Elizabeth, he got from some first-hand witness to these events. It's quite likely that Zechariah and Elizabeth were dead by the time Luke wrote his gospel. But there were first-hand witnesses who were familiar with all of these things, who knew Zechariah and Elizabeth. And isn't it interesting that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes this comment, and not only includes this comment, but includes the comment in the order in which he writes it. It's as though Luke is saying this. Luke, who is a Gentile. Okay. Luke, who is a Gentile. It's almost as though Luke is saying this. Look, I understand your culture. I get how Jewish people think about things. And I get how Jewish people think about childlessness. By the way, he spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew. And I get how Jewish people think about childlessness. And I get that there is this strong inclination to conclude that a barren woman is somehow, for some reason, displeasing to God. And so God withholds his blessing. Well, I'm going to tell you something about Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'm going to tell you that they were childless. But before I tell you that they were childless, I'm going to tell you something else about them. I'm going to tell you that they were both righteous before God. That they both walked faithfully before God. So don't try to locate the reason for their childlessness in them. 
Don't try to locate in them the reason for this blessing that has been withheld. Are you with me? This is language that's reminiscent of Job's experience, isn't it? Job, who was a righteous man, an upright man, a man in whom God was pleased. And one of the first things that are said about Job, that he was a righteous man walking in the fear of the Lord. We need to understand what it is that Luke has in mind and what the scriptures have in mind when they say something like this. Are they saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth were perfect? Heavens, no. Are they saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth had accumulated enough of their own righteousness to commend them to God so that God is somehow constrained by their righteousness to accept them and favor them with his smile? Of course not. What the text says is that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in all the commandments of the statutes and statutes of the Lord. And you need to remember, folks, that when the scriptures say that, they're not thinking simply about the moral and ethical standards that are reflected in a place like Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments or all of the implications of those moral and ethical standards that are worked out in the life of Israel as people interact with one another and relate to one another, you have to remember that to walk faithfully in all the statutes and commandments of the Lord means, in addition, in addition to embracing the moral and ethical laws of God, you are also embracing Everything related to the system established by God for sacrifices and the shedding of blood so that there might be a restoration of fellowship between sinners and a holy God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth knew that they were sinners and they took their sin seriously And they understood those sacrifices to be the means which God had appointed, which find their great and ultimate fulfillment in the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. They understood that those sacrifices appointed by God across all of the days of the annual cycle of festivals in Israel's life leading up to the day of atonement when the priest would stand in the midst of the people and the scapegoat would be slain and that blood would be taken into the holy place and the other goat would then having had the sins of the people transferred to the goat carried out into the wilderness they knew that their sins were being atoned for and that their sins were being borne away from the presence of God they embraced all of it they embraced all of it not just the moral and ethical stuff when you read that they embraced all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord don't restrict it to behavioral stuff Extend it to the means which God has appointed and by which he restores a sinful people to himself. That's what it means for Zechariah and Elizabeth to be righteous before God. So it begs the question, doesn't it? If the reason for their barrenness, folks, this is big. This is big. 
if the reason for their barrenness is not to be located in them, if the reason for God's withholding the blessing of children is not to be found in them, in their sin or defect or lack of faith, what's the explanation for it? Where do you locate the reason for this blessing being withheld which caused them Shame, isolation, fear, perhaps a whole lot of other things. Where do you locate the answer to that question? In God and in God's sovereign, wonderful, powerful, loving purpose. Not only for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for untold thousands and millions of people. So you have to take the silence that Zechariah and Elizabeth experienced as they prayed. And you know they prayed. I mean, think about it. Maybe Elizabeth got married when she was in her teens. Not an uncommon thing. In fact, a fairly often occurring thing. Maybe she got married in her teens. 16, 15, 17, 18, I don't know. And beginning then, she's praying for children. And her parents are praying for children. And a year goes by, and five years go by, and ten go by, and she's still in her 20s, and she can still have babies. And then she gets into her 30s. And I don't know what constitutes old age in the scriptures. I know what old age begins to feel like at age 62. I know stuff doesn't work as well. But she's deep into motherhood, the ages in which children are born, and she doesn't have any, and there is nothing but silence coming back at her. You've got to set that silence against the backdrop of a much bigger silence. A much more long-lasting silence. And that is the silence of the 400 plus years from the time of Malachi down to the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Two or three decades of silence for Z and E. Four plus centuries of silence. For Israel. You know the last words? The last words of Malachi's prophecy? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Words that are taken from Malachi, spoken by Gabriel about John the baptizer. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now I'm, I'm going to send someone. Those are the last words, the end of Malachi. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. And from that point forward, utter 
silence in Israel. And this is after more than a thousand years of every generation having a prophet from Moses down to the days of Malachi. One who spoke the word of God to the people of God. But after Malachi, silence. No fulfillment. The Babylonians rise up. After the Babylonians, the Persians. After the Persians, the Greek. After the Greeks, the Romans. They're living under the boot of Rome. All these centuries have gone by. The people are oppressed. They're not free. Silence. Silence. Four centuries. What does four centuries mean? Think back to 1600. Think William Perkins. Think William Ames. Think Scottish Covenanters. Think Mary I, Bloody Mary. If you're from, if you're from, if you're Dutch. Think Northern Europe. Think Belgic Confession. Think Synod of Dort. Think Heidelberg Catechism. That gets you in the neighborhood of 400 years. Names, places, events, circumstances that mean precious little to us. You probably don't know who William Perkins and William Ames are. You may know very little about the Scottish Covenanters. Call me this week. We'll have lunch. We'll talk. Look, things fade over time, don't they? The promise of Malachi, 300 years ago, 350 years ago. What happens when a promise isn't fulfilled? You come to believe. It isn't going to be. It isn't going to be. You see what's happening? You see what's happening in this passage, in this time? The explanation for the childlessness of Zechariah and Elizabeth is not to be found in them. This is not about them ultimately, though it is about them because they are promised joy and gladness and they get their boy. But folks, there is a much bigger story unfolding here. And you locate the reason for their childlessness, not in them, not in their circumstances, but you locate it in God. And here's the important thing, and it's a tough pill to swallow. God appointed, God appointed suffering, loss, Shame, embarrassment, and silence in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth so that in and through them he, at the appointed time, would show himself faithful. Look, that's how it works, folks. When did Abraham and Sarah have their baby? Abram was a hundred Sarah's 99. Again, I don't know what 100 looks like. I know what 62 looks like. When does God work? How does God work? God doesn't work when human resources can be the thing identified as the explanation for why something happens. 
God works against the backdrop of silence and hopelessness and despair and even fear and doubt and anxiety that gets close to anger and bitterness and sometime crosses the boundary into anger and bitterness. And even when that happens, none of it is too big for God to act. None of it. God ordered, listen to this, God ordered their suffering for the good of the nation. God appointed their loss for the gain of thousands and even millions. You've got to remember what we talked about when we looked at Peter in Luke chapter 5 and the passage in which Jesus tells Peter to go fishing. Go back and go fishing. You remember this? And in the course of that sermon, I suggested to you that at that moment, Peter would have no idea, could not conceive that he would write a couple of short letters that tens and hundreds of millions of people would benefit from. He could not have conceived that a group of folks in Vero Beach, Florida, would be looking at his life to think about his life and to try to extract Jesus from Jesus' dealings with him, things that they might learn in order to understand how Jesus is dealing with them. And I suggested to you that you must not look at your life in isolation and you must not look at any other life in isolation. You must see your life as a thread, a thread woven into a tapestry, which is the tapestry God is weaving, not only in your life, of your life, but your life in connection with the whole of human history. And and you very legitimately and very understandably have in years gone by, days gone by, and maybe even right now are asking God, what are you doing and why are you so silent? And what I'm suggesting to you is something you know. You You folks are in this church a while. You remind me of this. God is big and God is good. God is big. He is very, 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 very big. He is incalculably bigger than your biggest conceptions of him. Please come back next week because we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about how it is that the divine and the human can intersect with one another. And there are folks, just as an example, how is it in this passage, how is it That Zechariah is chosen by lot to go in to offer incense. You know, it's like God sets the whole thing up. And then he waits with bated breath, hoping that the roll of the dice will get Zechariah in there. 
See, we, we, we look at the intersection of the divine and the human, whether it's in Zechariah's life or whether it's in the incarnation, these two distinct natures, divine and human, in this one person. J.I. Packer reminds us in his book, Knowing God, that child in that manger, freshly newly born, was God. And our brains can't wrap themselves around these things. God is big, my friends, incalculably, immeasurably bigger than our biggest conceptions of him. And he is good. And he is working. And he works in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, appointing their suffering for the well-being of untold thousands and millions. So, what is it that breaks the silence? We have about one minute for each of these last two points. Sorry, I haven't preached for three weeks. <laughs> what is it that breaks the silence? Folks, this is so... I mean, there is so much lovely, powerful, beautiful, encouraging drama here. What is it that breaks the silence? It is the speech of God. It is the speech of God. It is the promise of God. It is the word of God. What is it that breaks 400 years of silence? It is an angel appearing to a humble old man. A man who you have to think when he, when he got his chance to go into the holy place, when he got his chance, thought maybe one last prayer would do it. And he prayed. And notice the sweet response of Gabriel. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And you'll have a son. And you'll call his name John. And then Zechariah, of course, looking at himself and thinking about his wife, says, I get basic biology here, dude. I don't see how this is going to work. I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And how does Gabriel respond? I love this. Yeah, that's true. But I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I have come to give this news to you. You know what Gabriel means? It means warrior of God. Got another hour? Let's go. (laughs) Warrior of God. He sends the warrior. He doesn't just send Michael the messenger. He sends the warrior of God. Why? Because the assault is about to begin. And the assault is going to begin in the birth of John the Baptist who will fulfill Malachi 4, who will be the forerunner of the one to make the assault upon the kingdom of darkness. And you know what the result of that is? It is the speech of God that breaks the silence. And when the silence is broken, there is a song. There's a song. Read through Luke 1 and 2 this week. There is so much singing in these first two chapters. Mary sings. Zechariah, when he finally gets his tongue back, he sings. 
Simeon sings. The angels sing. Why do they sing? Because they see that the time has come. The time of fulfillment has arrived. And now begins the great reversal and the great undoing of all of the ravaging effects of the fall. Folks, we're going to look next week at Mary's song. I want to encourage you especially to read Mary's song and hear her as she sings, recognizing that the time of silence is over. The word of God has broken the silence. And it is time now to sing. That's why we do this. That's why we observe the church year. Because every year we want to cycle through these events which are history-altering, life-changing, world-transforming events. That's what this is about. It is about the great and good God speaking with power to undo in his son Jesus Christ everything that was done by sin and the fall. Let's enter into Advent with a sense of anticipation and with joy and gladness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that there is, while on the one hand, still so much of a kind of silence. So many things we wonder about, so many mysteries we can't wrap our brains around. There is this reality, this fact that you have broken the silence by your advent into this world. And your purpose is to redeem a people, restore that people, and renew the whole earth. Oh God, help our hearts to catch up with the glory of these thoughts. Be with us through these days, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.